Welcome everybody to another one in our series of Financial Wellbeing Podcasts. My name is David Lloyd, writer, actor, broadcaster, bloke around town. Uh, I'm here with uh, our producer, uh, Tom Morris. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Tom. Hiya, short and sweet, Chartered Financial Planner at Ovation Finance. Done. Short, very sweet. And talking about somebody who's neither short or sweet, Chris Budd. So I'm now third. Am I? On yeah. the introductions? Yeah. He's taken over that much. Chris, you're top of the bill. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a very interesting call this morning, David. I'm really, really chuffed that this podcast seems to be, what was the old Carlsberg advert, reaching the places other podcasts can't reach. <laughs> Is that right? It was from a chap who works for the Money Charity. Now, they are a really interesting organisation, but they're all about financial capability and they go into vulnerable groups and to schools delivering financial education, which is just what we're all about. Well, I know you've talked about this quite a lot, about your belief that our schools certainly should be teaching our kids how to handle money. Yeah, and what money means and what money can do and its, its position in the world. But also, and this is what the, the money charity do, some practical stuff around budgeting and debt and all this kind of thing. Not really the stuff that we get into, particularly in this podcast, because we're all about money and happiness, but clearly handling debt is a massive issue. And it's great that there are charities out there. Um, and I'm really pleased that they're now getting in touch with us. So we love talking to people like that. We'd love to hear more people like that want to get in touch with us and just share some ideas and maybe get them on. Um, really pleased that we're getting some real traction from, from what we're talking about. Excellent. Well, that's good. That's very heartening. Well, we'll carry on doing them then. All right, we? then. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today? Today, David represents the end of a long and winding road. We have a guest interview, the securing of which is the culmination of years, nay decades of hard work. Tell me more. Well, okay, I sent him a few tweets. Well, it's quite a few tweets. Almost like I was stalking him on social media for a while. I was so keen to get him on the podcast. I'm desperate to know who it is. It is, in fact, Oliver Berkman. Get out of here. No, the one, the only... Oliver Berkman wrote the book called The Antidote, which I love. Uh, he is the one that you've been banging on and on and on about. It's and true. he's actually agreed to come on. He's, we, we've had a long chat. So this is a slightly longer podcast than we would normally do because I just enjoyed what he had to say so much. I wanted to share as much as we possibly could with people. All right. In that case, then, let's not to us waffle around too much. <laughs> but before we get on to Oliver, time for a couple of our regular features uh, we'll start with our new word section. Remember, it all started with hugger, Danish word. We're looking for words that have no direct translation to English, but relate in some way to well-being or doing something that makes others happy. What have you got for us today, Chris? Today, we have a word from Norway, a Norwegian word called kosli. It's actually uh, spelled K-O-S-E-L-I-G, pronounced, I hope, something like Kuzeli. It's described on one website, thrillist.com, as a kind of philosophy Norwegians live by to get through their dark winters. But I think it must be horrible to be there in the winter when it's just dark all the time. Well, the suggestion is that this is a great word because it describes the Norwegian generally optimistic attitude. So exactly as you say, we would think how depressing that must be, but actually they approach it in a very much more positive way. For example, they might say, uh, it's really cold, but that's great because I've got this lovely warm scarf to put on. And that's an example of kuzeli. Well, I think that's a great attitude. I think we could all have a little bit more kuzeli in our life. Let's move swiftly on then to the next of our regular features, which is becoming incredibly popular. 
Titus Tomo. This feature was inspired by our producer Tomo, who took... Who's a tight ass? <laughs> took Chris and a colleague out for a meal, persuaded them, said, I'll pay, I'll pay, persuaded them to have a particular thing on the menu that I think you all agreed was quite nice, but it turned out that he'd managed to get a voucher through some app whereby he got a special deal on that. So thus was tight ass Tomo born. So, if you remember from the last podcast, Chris Dames of Cervello Financial Planning in Raynham, Essex, has sent us a load of great Tight Ass Tomo tips, and we are going to read the load out over these next few podcasts to decide which one he, there's one he did himself, which one is it? So, here's two more, okay? Next one, save money and hassle on travelling by posting your clothes to your holiday in advance. <laughs> I'm not sure how practical... Could you actually do that? Do I think? suppose you could. Yes, it cost you a lot, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm not sure where the saving is. Tight-ass Tomo's not up for that. I no, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm a pack horse when I go on holiday. Yeah. I'm carrying all the bags. Do you wear five jumpers and two coats yeah, on the aeroplane yeah. so you can get more in? Yeah. Um, and secondly, Chris suggests, whilst on a night out, reduce your spending on food and drink by simply gate-crashing a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> well, the weddings always get to that point of the evening, don't they, when nobody really knows what's going on. <laughs> exactly. You can probably get away with that. One. Great tips as ever there from Chris. Uh, and speaking of weddings, I've got a good one here from wedding photographer Belinda McCarthy. Uh, and she is at B underscore McCarthy photo. Cut the cake before the wedding breakfast and serve it as pudding. Saves you a fortune on a separate dessert course. Quite like that, actually. Yeah, quite, quite, quite sensible. Quite sensible yeah. Tomo, what is your tight ass Tomo tip of the week? Practical this week, rather than a funny. I don't know how familiar you are with cashback sites. Oh, no, not really. Okay. Tell us more. So I'll tell you a bit more. So I'll talk about one that I use in particular. It's called Top Cashback. And effectively, if you buy anything, it's likely to be on this site that you can click through the Top Cashback site and get some form of cashback. It might be 5% off a Debenhams purchase or something like that. But the one thing that I use it extensively for is motor insurance, home insurance, that sort of thing. And I just want to... I've opened up my account now and just tell you about some of the cashback that I've got and essentially how it works is it's a finder's fee that top cashback get and they share it with you so I did my home insurance this month and I got 50 pounds cashback I did my car insurance and got 63 pounds cashback so it's not insignificant and all of a sudden it helps to pay for things like Christmas and that sort of thing and that's what we is, do. Your, is your car insurance 80 quid more expensive by going through that side? That's going to be my question. No, you'd have to spend a bit more time because what I do is then compare it to the costs of what it would be, you know, if you went through a comparison site, for example. And yeah, it might be slightly more expensive, but the cashback makes up for it and you've got a little bit extra. So you've got to do a little bit of research to make sure you're not being stitched up. But yeah, a great way of just getting a bit extra cash and saving on those, on those um, you know, key utilities. Oh, that's good. Interesting. So yeah, top cashback. Have a look at it, and it's dead easy to get your cash back, but it does take a bit of time. It takes a couple of months to come through, but other, other, worth looking at. Other cashback sites and are, available. are available. They are. <laughs> I think quid co- they're there. Just type in cashback into You're Google. You're all grown up. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that, Tomo. A good tight-ass tip as ever. So, you've been banging on and on and on about Oliver Berkman ever since we started doing these I think I love him. I think you probably do as well. So, um... I hope this interview is going to be good. No, precious on. I think you. I think you're going to enjoy this. I certainly did. So Oliver is a journalist and he writes a regular column for the Guardian. Has done for quite a few years. They're kind of philosophical type columns, which I think are kind of about how to deal with modern life. 
the book, The Antidote, is the only non-fiction book I have ever read with a highlighter pen. <laughs> the title of the book comes from the idea that it's the antidote to self-help books. And it's about the power of negativity. It's about trying to just do something different than those often American self-help gurus who tell you that you can achieve anything in life if only you want it hard enough, which is clearly absolute rubbish. It's a fascinating read. We'll be giving some copies away when this podcast comes out. So let's just hand over now and listen to Oliver Berkman. Oliver, thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that this is um, a big moment for me. So do you want to just perhaps open up by just explaining uh, what you do and uh, why you wrote this book called The Antidote? Sure. Thank you very much for those kind words. Um, I am a columnist for the Guardian newspaper and I wrote uh, this book called The Antidote. The subtitle is Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. It sort of starts off as a a sort of um, attempt to demolish some of the things that I think are uh, unhelpful and stupid about the idea of positive thinking and self-help culture, but then I sort of hopefully do something a bit more constructive as well and, and look at what the alternatives to that might be uh, on a path to happiness. We can we can talk a bit about that, but I guess it just arose out of this Guardian column I've been writing for some years. I, I, um, I noticed this pattern emerging where uh, all the kinds of self-help techniques and things that I was writing about and experimenting with myself, the ones that really didn't work seemed to all be, in some sense, belong to this family of ideas that I I call positive thinking. Uh, People's definitions vary a bit. And that the ones that did work seemed to be much more about learning to become more comfortable with negativity or even to sometimes pursue negative experience and not sort of obsessing so much about trying to to focus on the the positive all the time. So that's where it came from. Do you think that that is more prevalent in America where you now live rather than in England? I mean, I'm sure on some level I was, by the time I wrote it, sort of reacting to a cultural thing, but, but it's incredibly common as as far as I can see, certainly from the publishing markets in the in the UK as well, with kind of this focus on on positivity. I think that you know there's a very extreme sort of tip of the iceberg, which is probably more American, which is a kind of certain kind of you know motivational seminar with tens of thousands of people in the audience that where you're sort of told to that nothing is impossible if you just eliminate the word impossible from your vocabulary, you can reach the stars. But I think it's quite important to stress that you know the thing I'm going up against in this book and offering an alternative to, I think it's much more widespread than that. And I think a lot of people, including, you know, myself to some extent, who would obviously just sort of chuckle at that extreme form of positive thinking, still really do subscribe to something that you could call positive thinking, a kind of set of assumptions about how the way to be happy and successful is basically to set really clear and ambitious goals, try not to dwell on the negative, to visualize successful outcomes, a whole lot of other things that are really not so freaky and fringy as uh, as those motivational seminars maybe do. Um, and I think there's quite a lot of problems with all of those as well. Let's get into the, the goals, um, the first of those that you said. What's your problem with somebody having a clear goal? Well, actually, this is one of the most for me, sort of nuanced parts of the book, maybe I actually, you know, I would be lying if I said I was completely opposed to people having any goals at all uh, or clear goals. I think it would be sort of futile anyway, because there's some level on which we can't help but have goals. You know, you do most of the things you do in your day for some 
reason, and maybe that's all it takes to, to have a, a goal. I think that we have as a culture, and I think this is not just in America, gone far too far in the direction of, of a sort of fixation on goals, by which I mean this notion that having an incredibly clear vision of where you want to get to and then trying to sort of ignore everything else apart from fighting to get to it uh, is somehow the recipe for the most meaningful, successful life. And there's a lot of research and I think a lot of personal experience people will have to show that it doesn't really work that way. Um, one of many reasons, I think, is that uh, when you're incredibly narrowly focused on one goal, you become sort of blinkered. You don't see unexpected, interesting, fruitful potential uh, avenues you could go down because it's not relevant to this this goal. You know, you, setting a goal like that on some level implies that you know about the future. You know what you're going to want uh, in 10 or 20 years' time. You know um, how things are going to go, and you're going to make sure they go that way. And I think there's a stance of being much more open and receptive to all the enormous proportion of life that we can't control that is actually makes for a more fulfilling existence. In, in all sorts of philosophies, um, I focus particularly in the book on the Stoics of ancient Greece and Rome and on Buddhism, but there are many others. You, you get all these ideas coming to the fore. And then, yes, I think being lost for certain reasons to do with the, the kind of society we've created at this point. Could you tell us the story of the philosopher of Stoicism and uh, his student in the courtyard? This is just an anecdote from ancient history about the uh, philosopher who has his student uh, walk across the courtyard with a pot of metal porridge, I think, and then sort of upends it on him so he looks ridiculous and is covered and splattered and all this gloopy stuff. And it's just an example of, you know, the, the response of the, of the student who is splattered is, is to feel shame and embarrassment because he looks ridiculous, want to run away. And this is just an illustration of one part of the psychology of stoicism, which is like the philosopher said, there's nothing rational about your shame or embarrassment. This is not something you caused to happen. These are events in the world that you didn't have any control over and therefore having this kind of personal emotional investment in them and becoming very distressed. Uh, by how you think you look is not rational. The overriding point here in Stoicism is the idea that it's not events that happen in the world that, that, that make us distressed. It's our beliefs about those events. And I think that's pretty much universally true. Sometimes it seems a little bit like, well, beside the point, because if something really terrible, you know, happens to a loved one, you could say it's only because you believe it's a problem that something happened to your loved one that you're upset but most of us would still want to feel upset, I think, in, those, in that context. But in all sorts of much lesser contexts, you really begin to see that, um, you know, we go through life getting very worried and anxious and panicked about all sorts of things. And it's not really the events. It's the idea that they're going to lead us to some other circumstance. We're going to, you know, because we heard someone in the office talk about downsizing plan, we instantly imagine ourselves living in a cardboard box because everything's gone wrong in our lives and you know there's something interesting there about the the role of the role of belief uh, in in distress i think one of the principles of um, what we talk about in financial well-being is know thyself that's kind of at the heart of everything uh, one of the lines that we use all the time is financial planning is very very simple you work out what you want from life and you spend your money on that 
which of course is a lot easier to say than actually do. Uh, and that's why I think your book appeals to me so much, because it's all about understanding yourself and understanding your limitations and your faults and being happy with them. I, I think there's a lot of truth in seeing it from, from that um, angle. It's, um, it's being happy with them, but it's also just like seeing that they are what they are and no longer living in this kind of denial that can be... Um, you know, in a short term, maybe sort of comfortable and comforting, but um, but in the long term is a uh, is really sort of counter to one's own happiness. So yeah, I mean, I think one of the great lessons of social psychology in the in the last uh, sort of couple of decades, which I do touch on briefly in the book, is this idea that we are actually really bad at predicting what will make us happy or deeply upset in the future. People recover from traumas and recover from the joy of like winning the lottery very quickly and revert to their own, uh, their previous baseline of, you know, the kind of uh, happiness that they, uh, the levels that they, that they had before. So some of it's about knowing yourself in detail and some of it's about sort of knowing what you can't know about yourself and living in that uncertainty and, and not pretending that you, you really have a, a very clear sense of exactly how you're going to make your life go or what's going to happen uh, to you in it. A, more, a broader idea that I that I sort of get at in the in the book, I hope, is just this idea of being kind of open to emotions and experiences of whatever kind they are. It's not I'm not really claiming that somebody ought to be just as fine with truly terrible things happening in their lives as truly wonderful things, but it's this attitude toward those things that in Buddhism gets called non-attachment. This thing that you can cultivate in certain ways, meditation and famous and fashionable example of that, to sort of not be completely knocked off course by the content of your emotions and thoughts, uh, to be able to sort of observe them and treat them a little bit like weather patterns, you know, so that sometimes it's going to be stormy and sometimes it's going to be sunny, uh, but you don't, that doesn't sort of change the fact of the sky behind them, you know, there's all these different metaphors that really try to just get at the idea that you don't need to spend your life desperately doing everything you can to eliminate the possibility of some things failing uh, or of experiencing some sadness, and that actually you end up overall, uh, on aggregate, happier when you, when you don't. So given that we've got all this advertising and all these, all these gurus telling us that, that we're in a bad place and we need their product to be in a good place, uh, do you have anything that people can actually do? I mean, because what you're talking about is an acceptance, which is an idea, but is there anything that people can actually do to help them insulate themselves from that noise? Well, I divide, that, I divide the answer to that into a couple of different buckets. Really. I mean, first of all, yes, I think above all, this is about a perspective shift. And so anything you can do to cultivate that shift in perspective is probably more powerful than a given trick or technique. So therefore, just things like keeping a journal or doing some meditation or reading philosophy, seeing a therapist, you know, anything, anything that serves in life to sort of throw you back on yourself a bit and, and keep you plumbing the depth. I was just going to say, one of our previous podcast guests, Simon Ganesan, talked about uh, just do something. No, I certainly do agree that like doing one thing differently is really important. I, I'm really just, I think it's important to sort of distinguish between the perspective shift and then the world of 
tricks and techniques. They're both important. But ultimately, I think this is about a perspective shift. But when it comes to specific strategies, one of the things I talk about in the book is this process of uh, negative visualization that uh, the Stoics sort of pioneered, where instead of trying to deal with anxiety or worry by trying to reassure yourself or someone else, you know, that everything's going to be great, you actually soberly ask yourself, okay, what's actually the worst thing that could happen if this didn't go well, if this all went wrong? And this is really fascinating on multiple levels. You know, on one hand, you usually find the answer is less bad than you've been fearing. Uh, on, on another level, um, it, it has the effect of sort of fostering appreciation and gratitude for what you have now. And in the third case, it makes you confident that, you know, you, you get a bit more prepared for, for disaster. So you know that actually if those things did strike, you'd be a bit more psychologically resilient in the face of them. So that's kind of something on a sort of day-to-day level I use all the time. If you're sort of anxious about giving a public speech to a bunch of people or something, you know, what's actually for real the worst thing that could happen here is a very powerful question. But one of the things that I've always found very useful are techniques that put that, that objectify your own thoughts to you a little bit, but put a that add a step between a thought and acting on the thought. So that's a lot of what stoicism is about. But in a way, it's also what that um, old tipper is about. That you know, if you really want to make some impulse purchase, you should you should write it down in a notebook and have a sort of system whereby it comes up again in your calendar like a week later. So that with the distance of a week, you can look at that thought and see if that's still something you want. And if it is, and you can afford it, then go for it. But but that sort of buffer that you're creating objectifies your thoughts. It's a kind of meditation, really. I mean, even though it uh, doesn't sound like it. We do have one concept in financial planning, which I think is quite analogous, which is that of capacity for loss. And that's something that... Uh, so you have attitude to risk. How much risk do you think you would accept with your investments? Which actually is a completely nonsensical question because you can't predict your future behaviour. Capacity for loss, however, is a number that we give the client. So uh, we work out what they, how much they need for the life that they want and then you do some planning and some forecasting and then you say, this is the amount that your money could go down and you'd still be okay. Anything more than that and you've got problems. And, that's a, and that capacity for loss concept, I think that's quite analogous, actually, with what you were describing about worst-case scenarios and so forth. Yes, and in fact, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, another part in the book where I talk about this idea of the principle of affordable loss in a slightly different context, which is to do with business risks. And this is something that entrepreneurs actually do. You know, we think that what they do is, is set very specific, clear goals and then pursue them stubbornly. But what they really do is things like this. They ask themselves the question, not will this venture I'm going to launch succeed, but could I cope and be okay if it fails? And that's actually a really good way of distinguishing, and it sounds like it's exactly what's going on with your advice too, between like crazy risks and exciting, potentially productive risks, because you don't want to live a life that is so cautious that you never risk anything, and you don't want to risk a life that is so rash that you risk things that uh, you couldn't possibly live without and I think that that kind of that kind of self-questioning can be enormously powerful so to draw a distinction there. I also like the idea of effectuation. Can you explain how that works? Well yes and actually the principle of affordable loss I think really is categorized as part of effectuation. If you actually look at what really goes on, people don't make detailed business plans and then and then sort of carry them out step by step. They ask themselves if they could afford to fail and then they do it. They ask themselves, you know, what they could do with the resources that they have available to them right now. So, like, okay, here I am. I've got these talents. 
these could be physical materials in a warehouse, could be if you have a company, it could be uh, um, employee skills. What can I do with what I've got? So uh, the analogy that gets used is, you know, they're less like gourmet chefs who decide uh, on a certain dish they'd like to, to, to cook and then scour the world for the perfect ingredients. And they're more like me coming home on an evening and looking in the cupboard and the fridge and seeing like, what's the best thing I can make with what's available. And like this is what actually happens in a, uh, based on, according to uh, Sarasvati's research, in, a, in an awful lot of cases of very successful businesses. And, you know, they don't start with this shimmering vision of the end point and sort of force reality to, to bend to their will. They are much more about seeing, okay, what do we have here and what's the most interesting thing that could be done with it. And then another uh, plank of this approach is the idea that you're then very, very ready to change direction all the time. You know, you, you follow what seems to be the most promising lead. And then rather than sticking to this goal, and also that you sort of solicit feedback very early on. So this is a sort of point more specific, I guess, to, to people starting businesses. But, you know, you just try and make a sale and see how it goes and see what people think of it rather than waiting till everything is perfect and then hoping you're going to get thousands and thousands of sales. You know, just like start putting your idea in contact with reality. And I think that's probably something that applies uh, in the wider world beyond uh, the world of entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, and, and definitely has analogies for, for financial planning as well. Just just uh, don't try and make a definite goal in some shimmering point in the future. Just live life, do what makes you happy with what you've got. Well, I've definitely been guilty of my own sort of personal finance of having this idea that, like, okay, I need to completely overhaul everything, get it exactly sorted out, figure out, like, the absolute best place that this money should be invested or saved. And then what happens is, like, two years go by, and it's been sitting in an extremely low earning current account the whole time when it could have been doing something more wiser. And, and, and or a million different analogies, a different contexts. But the whole thing, this idea that I've got this sort of perfect fantasy of the most sensible possible thing uh, to do that sort of takes me so long to get around to figuring out that, you know, life happens and I'm not doing uh, – more sensible things that I should be doing in the meantime. And usually the trigger for people to take it out of the low-earning environment and invest it in the stock market is when the stock market peaks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the other topic that kept coming to me as I was reading your book is that the idea of acceptance, and it's a, an idea that comes out of the Financial Wellbeing book as well, that if we keep striving for more, more, more all the time, then we forget to actually enjoy what we have and forget to be happy. And I really, I'm, I'm very taken with the idea. However, it seems to me that we've got a direct contradiction here to ambition and achievement. That if everybody just accepted what they had and chilled out a little bit, then people wouldn't strive, be entrepreneurial, um, create things and discover new things. How can we reconcile happiness and achievement? I think that's a great question. Um, two different ways of answering it spring to mind. Just quickly, the first is, of course, that we can be kind of moderate and compromising about this. You know, you can you can be ambitious, but but not hyper ambitious. You can learn to value what you've got, but not tell yourself you've you're not allowed to, to want more. You know, there's a sort of as with all these things, there's a kind of uh, sober middle way. There's a kind of specific understanding of acceptance that I've always found very helpful because it often gets mixed up, especially when you come across it in sort of Buddhisty spiritual kind of context, I suppose. There's always this this implication of resignation, you know, that you've just got to accept how life is 
and you're not allowed to want to change it. And this could be in your personal finances, but it could equally be in sort of social activism or something. You could you could live in a terribly unjust society and want to change it, and then someone come along and say, no, just accept the way it is. And, and the distinction that's made between acceptance and resignation is that acceptance is not that you can't about trying to squelch the desire to change things. Acceptance is about really accepting that you that things are as they are right now. And that seems kind of stupid, like don't we do that anyway? But I think we really don't a lot of the time. I think we uh, put up all sorts of psychological barriers and rationalizations to try to convince ourselves that they're different. The classic example that's always given in these contexts is that Acceptance doesn't mean that you have to resign yourself to a really terrible or abusive relationship, but you do have to accept that it really is what it is and not keep trying to, you know, sugarcoat it to yourself in your, in your own mind. And one thing that makes me think of in this money is that, you know, I have been at in periods of my life where I like try not to look at the parts of the ATM display that tells you what your current account balances when you're trying to withdraw some money, you know, because you don't want to, and that's sort of non-acceptance, because whatever it is, overdraft, not as much as I thought it was going to be, that is true. <laughs> like, that's a fact in your life, and it does not make any difference whether you uh, look at it or not. Now, that, of course, doesn't, that kind of acceptance that allows you to sort of get better at confronting the true facts of your situation, far from stopping you wanting to change them through ambition or, or striving, it's it's kind of the precondition for doing the ambition or the striving well, um, because if you don't know where you're starting from, you know, you're not going to make good decisions about how to pursue your ambition. So I think that that form of acceptance is totally compatible with, with ambition, really. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe we need to redefine or, or more carefully define what we mean by acceptance, and uh, uh, and, and that will help us to still have ambition. Well, and you could also, yes, just finally, you would also want to add the possibility, like, could you be ambitious to want to transform your situation and still hold on to the notion that if that failed, your life would be meaningful and fulfilling and worth living? You know, that's a, it's a difficult thing to do. And I certainly don't write a book like this from the position that, like, I've, I've sorted it all out and I've got all the answers and I'm psychologically perfect. But, like, that's the real challenge, I think, to be able to launch any kind of grand ambitious project be really passionate about it and know that you don't need it to succeed in order to be worthy of being alive and having a happy life just to finish i i know from your post on twitter that you have a young son i'm curious to know if your views on anything in the book have changed since you've become a father oh wow what a question it's it's really interesting because obviously Sort of everything has changed. I mean, that's how it works. I suppose two things just quickly occur. One of them is that it raises the stakes immeasurably on things like, you know, oh, dealing with sadness and bad things happening because the idea of any any even slightly bad thing happening to him is somehow so much more painful than, uh, you know, day-to-day work worries or something that I might have meant when I referred to that before. On the other hand, I suspect that the argument for acceptance and sort of understanding what you can and can't control and not uh, spending your life making everyone miserable by trying to control what you can't control is like, I suspect that's like a thousand times more true now when it comes to parenting. So I suppose what I'm saying there is that all these things I write about, it's like 
true, but more so, and the stakes are higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's magnified them. Yeah, now maybe that's a bit self-justifying, and maybe in a year I'll, you know, come back to me and I'll say, oh, no, I was, like, I was totally wrong about some aspect because I, my eyes were opened by by this. But at the moment, it just seems like a sort of intensifying of everything rather than a refutation of any specific principle, if that makes sense. That could be partly down to the lack of sleep as well, of course. <laughs> yeah, I think that probably explains an awful lot in my life, I <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. I really enjoyed the antidote. Thank you for writing it and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for your kind words and for the invitation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Well, Chris, I can see why you were so excited about getting Oliver on the podcast. Isn't he an interesting chap? Very interesting and a, a very, and I think he used the word himself, very some very nuanced points that he was mm. making there. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The stoic student story with the porridge, covered in porridge. Mm. The message there is only worry about what you can control, which, of course, is easy to say, isn't it? <laughs> and like so much of this stuff doing it is another matter. But in terms of money, the stock market goes up and we feel good. The stock market goes down and we feel bad. We can't do anything about it. Mm. We can't control it. So... Can we? What's the point in having those emotional reactions? Now, like I say, it's easier said than done, but if we can just try and control what we control and not worry about what we can't control, to a degree, I think we'll be a bit happier. And you talked a bit as well about that gulf between not getting too hung up on setting over-ambitious goals while still setting goals, but then, of course, the problem with that is that we're all living in an uncertain world, so it's all very well for us to say, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm aiming for, and I think it's true to say that if you have that as a target, you are more likely to get there. However, life is going to throw stuff in your way that may well stop you. And we need to accept that, that we do live in an uncertain world. And, and can we apply that to financial planning as well? Mm. Yeah, I've, I've definitely. Um, you know, one of the things that he was talking about, this effectuation, that when you're doing a business plan, actually, you don't do the perfect idea and then try and get the tools that are available to you you just see what's around and start doing something i didn't set up a financial planning business because that's what i dreamed of when i was 15 i fell into the industry i don't think we want to know about what you dreamt about when you were 15 chris <laughs> um, i fell into the industry as so many do and realized that i had a passion for it mm. it's, the, it's like the good enough principle do something that principle as well the good enough principle i really like um, and there's a lovely phrase that he used, put your idea in contact with reality. So rather than waiting to whatever it is that you want to do, waiting until it's perfect, get it out there, test it, adjust, move, uh, be flexible. You know, that's what that whole thing is, is all about. I think Carl Richards had a similar philosophy, didn't he? He did, he yeah. He said, yeah. do it, re get the information, come back to it, reassess, and just keep going through that cycle. Because if you just keep waiting for that perfect moment, it's unlikely that you'll actually ever Don't do Don't start anything. singing that perfect moment song. <laughs> I wasn't. For goodness sake. I wasn't going to. Um, Can I just tell you about um, Dane Kelly Holmes? Mm -hmm. I was at a conference recently at which I was speaking, and she was the kind of guest big name speaker. She was absolutely brilliant. Obviously, everybody knows Dame Kelly Holmes, two times Olympic gold medal winner. And she told um, her story of how she came to get those two gold medals. And I summed it up in a text to my two kids, which I'd like to read out to you, if I may. My children are teenagers, and like most teenagers, they, they don't like things that are going to make them look silly, you know. So that can sometimes stop you from doing things. So this is my text to my two kids. When we make mistakes, we learn. It is therefore important to make mistakes, or we will never learn new things about ourselves. In order to make mistakes, we have to try new things, to take chances. 
which is why it is important as we go through life to challenge ourselves, to try new things, to do things we are not comfortable with. That's not from me, it's from Dane Kelly Holmes. And you got a text back saying, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I got a text back from my son saying, wow, that's deep fam. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, but it's true, it's true. I think we're, all, we're always having to challenge our perceptions about where we are at in life. And indeed, the beliefs that we have, our whole belief system, and he talked about that as well, about how sometimes the things that we believe aren't necessarily true. Absolutely. Self-limiting beliefs is one of the things we talk about in the book. Can I just finish with one last point, which I also really liked, this idea of acceptance and ambition. I, th I loved his answer to that, because I've been worrying and dwelling on this for absolutely ages, because we're kind of telling everybody to just accept their lives as it is and accept the amount of money that they have, and I'm not entirely comfortable with that, even though I can see how it would lead to happiness. And what his answer was, it seemed to me, was all about be curious, um, accept, but be curious. It's not resigning yourself to your fate, it's understanding your fate, understanding your life, engage with your money. And it seemed to me that his answer actually was the same thing that we're trying to say to people. Understand your life, engage with your money, work out what you want from life, spend your money on that. So I really liked his answer to that question. It, it helped me a lot, actually. Well, well done, Chris, for finally getting Oliver Berkman onto the uh, podcast. Actually, well done, Tammy, who works for Ovation, because it was her that did it. Well done, Tammy. Really uh, appreciate well, that. Well, that's, that's great. And we look forward to uh, your interview coming up with the next podcast with the Pope. <laughs> 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 I hope you've enjoyed today. Thanks very much, Tomo. Thanks, Chris. My name's David Lloyd. We'll see you all again for a Financial Wellbeing podcast. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at finwellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Out of college, money spent, see no future, pay no rent. All the money's gone, nowhere to go.